All right, we're live, it looks like. All right, Romans chapter 9. Got a lot to do. Romans chapter 9. All right, it says we're live. All right. Okay, even on an Android. Even on Android. We, so, you know. Yeah. Do what? Wow, even Spreaker. Wow, maybe, maybe we just need to use Seth's hotspot. <laughs> Seth, even if you're not here, send your phone. Okay. With a connection key. Okay. Because clearly it's better than our actual internet here. Because <laughs> everything worked. Okay, so, all right. Romans chapter 9. Let's make it simple. What have we looked at so far in Romans chapter 9? Okay. All right. We've looked at... When we look at the three chapters, 9, 10, 11, many say are parenthetical, because if you can go from Romans 8 to Romans 12, and you wouldn't even miss 9, 10, and 11. All right? That's the argument. Okay? And it, in some ways, it makes a little bit of sense. And why is 9, 10, 11 considered so confusing? And Oh, okay, I'm like, uh, someone's door is open in the parking lot. What, what's, someone's stealing our car here in Ovalo. Okay, all right. In the middle of nowhere, we have a car thief. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? All right. Those listening to the internet, just disregard everything we're talking about. Okay. All right. Now, 9, 10, 11. Why is it those chapters seem so absolutely out of place and confusing? It's about Israel. And you're like, well, how does Israel come into an entire discussion about basically justification, right? Salvation. And in chapter 8, really dealt with what? Oh, come on. You've already forgot chapter 8? Okay. Well, it was six words, but election, predestination, calling, right? Glorification, right? We, we, so how does that have anything to do with Israel? It seems completely out of place. I want to make sure everyone understands. It seems out of place. It's okay to say that. I know you're not, you're like, can I say that? Yes, in church you can say it's out of place. It seems weird. It doesn't make any sense, right? Unless it does make sense. And we're trying to figure out how it makes sense. So, what is the big question at the beginning of chapter 9 that creates a lot of debate and argument within theological circles, especially as it relates to eschatology and as it relates to the subject of Israel? Okay, they're not all of Israel who are of Israel. And this leads a lot of people to, they don't care. They, all they do is like, that's it. Israel's done. They're not all Israel who's Israel. I'm Israel. Okay, whoa, you, you, you inserted yourself there really fast. Okay, I don't know how you got there, but you did, okay? And if, if we're Israel, then why is there three chapters about Israel? Because then the whole book would have been about Israel. Right? So then why, why dedicate three chapters about Israel if we're all Israel? That, that, that's a good question to ask. We haven't even brought that up yet, but you may want to write that question down. So what have we decided to do? Because we know that's where the argument's going to go, right? We all know where the argument's going to go. And, and theology and eschatology, remember, there's two schools of thought. What are the two simple schools of thought when it comes to biblical prophecy? If I had a chart up here, what are the two schools of thought? Israel's done, finished, done, gone, no more. Don't worry about national Israel. Okay? And the other view is? God's not done with Israel. I'm, I'm making it simple, right? Israel's done. No more. Forget them. Who cares? Who cares? Has nothing to do with anything. Or God's not done with Israel. Those are the two basic systems, right? I mean, there's variation, but that's, that's what it comes down to. So what, what have I decided to do? 
Now, we, remember, in the past, we looked up every reference to the word Israel. It was over 3,000. We spent like six months doing that church service after church service after church service so that no one could ever argue again about the, the situation. Yet people still argue, which is insane after you spend six months looking up every word. But okay, we did that. I'm not going to go do that again. <clears throat> because guess what? After we look, looked up all of those words, was it longer than six months? It was a long time, okay? It may have felt like a year. It may have felt like that was, that was my entire childhood, okay? All right. it, it took a long time. All right. But the reason we did that is that so no one could ever argue again. It didn't work. Okay. But I thought it would. I mean, like what what better way to do so than spend the time to actually do it. Right. And, And remember, anyone who's argued have yet to show me their list of looking up every word. Right. Because that. That would probably destroy the argument. But okay, so we did that. I'm not going to go back through that again. Here's the reason why. If we looked at all 3,000 plus references, would we come to a different conclusion? There's no way to come to it. There's no way to come to a different conclusion unless I don't know how to read. Right? Israel means Israel, other than maybe possibly two, possibly two. I'm not going to change the interpretation of 3,000 because of two. Logic would dictate the two would be interpreted based off. Wow, is that, is that complicated? Did, did anybody need to go to seminary to figure that out? Okay, that, that seems the way to go, right? Okay, so this is important. So, what, so because we're not going to go back and look up every use of the word, then what should we do? Let's go and ask this very important question. What promises was made to national Israel? And have they all been fulfilled? If God made promises to Israel that have not all been fulfilled, then that gives me only a couple of options. What are my options then? He's not done with Israel. Okay. God is not truthful. Can change his mind. Just can change his mind. He somehow lied to Israel and gave the promises to someone else. Or... The Bible's just a fraud. It's just garbage. He made promises he doesn't keep. Now, nobody likes many of those options. I don't like, why should we not like, some of you may want the option to be, well, he, gave the, he took the promises and gave them to someone else. You may think that's a good option. But the minute you think that's a good option, let me make it very clear, you don't believe in the doctrine of election. Because if God can elect someone and then steal the promises to those he elected and gives them to someone else, election is useless, it's a waste of time, and there's no point in reading Romans 1 through 8 because I can't trust God on anything about salvation. Right? God gave Bobby salvation. Sorry, Bobby. He, he gave it to Diane. You're out of luck. Changed his mind. So Diane now has your salvation. Sorry. Okay. Right? I can just... I can just, I can just get, you know, sorry, sorry, Twyla, you gave it to your brother, gave it to Kevin, you're, you're out of luck, you're, you're done, right? And you say that that's ridiculous, but that's what we're claiming, right? God made a promise and it said, sorry, not yours anymore, or Bobby, you didn't do enough to keep it. Right? Well, then that, that raises all kinds of questions. See, that, that starts to helping us understand why 9, 10, and 11 are there, right? Because... 
Now, if we understand that Israel may be very critical in understanding the entire doctrine of election, which was established in chapter 8, then 1911 makes some sense. If you're like, well, Israel's not really Israel, then 1911 makes absolutely no sense. Let me say it again. If Israel is not Israel, three chapters about Israel make no sense since we're already Israel. That means the whole book of Romans has already been about us, so why dedicate three chapters to it? That makes no sense. Unless you're going to say, well, 1911 shows that God made promises to Israel and then gave them to someone else. You see, the whole thing begins to fall apart. Does that, does that, does everyone, I'm going to continue to make sure I repeat myself over and over and over and over until you figure out maybe why 1911 actually are, are there, since th- many theologians disagree on the subject. I think it makes sense now, right? Now, here's what, what have we done so far? to do this. We started looking at promises, right? What was the first promise we looked at? Well, we looked at a number of scriptures. We can, the, remember, I, I got 11 different kind of categories, and the first group we called this as Old Testament predictions, which treat repentance and restoration of Israel and, escal- and, and basically in times which is distinct and separate from that which follow the Babylonian captivity. In other words, in the Old Testament, we have predictions and promises that speak of a repentance and restoration of Israel that clearly was not fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity. And which passages did we look at? Hosea 3, 4 through 5, and all of Ezekiel 37. And we spent all last week on Ezekiel 37. And there was plenty of language that did not fit the Babylonian captivity. What was the big issue in Ezekiel 37? Two sticks? Well, the two sticks clearly is not the church. (laughs) That's the divided kingdom. Bringing them into one stick, then you're like, okay, well then, it's just now that's going to be the church. It makes no sense in Ezekiel 37 that way, right? So you're saying that the, the whole, all of Ezekiel 37, remember, and especially Reformed churches, we've all made this, the sin of going to Ezekiel 37 and making it a picture of the church and our salvation when the text literally identifies what the Valley of Dry Bones represents. What does it represent? The house of Israel, it literally says that. It literally says that. Like, how blind can we be? And we, and Twyla looked up Matthew Henry. Uh, she didn't get to it there, but after, when it was all said and done, he basically said what? It's the church. It's the church, because that's all Matthew Henry can say about anything in the Old Testament, all right? So we looked at all of those. Everybody got that? So today we're just going to try to make it, just go a little further, all right? Here we go. Another group of verses seem to indicate the perpetuity of the nation of Israel in spite of repeated apostasies and and restorations after divine chastening. In other words, there's plenty of passages in the Old Testament that seems to speak of the perpetuity of the nation of Israel, that Israel's going to continue to last no matter how many apostasies, no matter how many restorations, no matter how many times they've been divinely chastened, God is going to continue to do something in them. Now, that would be comforting, right? Why would that be comforting? How did chapter 8 end? 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Think of it this way. Here's Paul. He's talking to a bunch of you Gentiles, right? Right? And you're in the Gentile church. He's like, hey, guys, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're like, nothing? Are you sure nothing? Israel. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess you're right. Nothing, okay, because they did everything. If, if, if Israel can't be separated from God, then nothing can separate me from God. Because Israel did everything. Now 9, 10, 11 is making a little bit more sense, right? Now, let's look at some of these scriptures and see what they have to say, all right? Now, remember, some of these scriptures, sometimes it'll be clear. Sometimes we'll just, we'll dismiss them. We'll see. The Ezekiel 37 was clearly far more clear than the Hosea passage. Hosea wasn't not clear, but I'm saying Ezekiel was like, there's no way to get around Ezekiel. I mean, that was like, you know. Problem solved, okay. But let's see what we have here, all right? You ready? All right, there's a bunch here. Let's go to Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus. And please note, I just, like, you just have to kind of choose random verses here because there's so much in the Old Testament on this subject. All right? Oh, boy. How far do we want to go here? Um, Leviticus 26. We'll go to verse 42. Man, there's so, we could actually do the whole chapter probably, but that's okay. All right. Leviticus 26. Everybody ready? Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Israel and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember and I will remember the land. Let's stop right here. This phrase is used frequently in the Old Testament, right? I will remember, I will remember, I will remember. And what is he remembering? Covenant, covenant. Now, let's all remind ourselves of this. Let's us remember something. When God made his covenant with Abraham, right? When he made his covenant with Abraham, what was significant about the way he made that covenant? Abraham was going night-night. Okay? He divided the animals. And remember, typically in an Old Testament covenant, two people would grab hands, walk between the animals, and that would demonstrate that they made a covenant. Well, Abraham's night-night. Who passes through the animals? God. So God made the covenant with Himself. Now, why is that significant? The eternal God made an eternal covenant with himself. That's good news. Good news for Israel. Good news for whom? Us. Because we believe the covenant he's made with us is what? Isn't it amazing how how people... I, I, look, I'm just going to be honest. I get this is I start getting fresh. I get frustrated with this subject sometimes. Isn't it amazing how we like God has saved me and I can't lose my salvation, but Israel lost it. Isn't it amazing how quickly we're ready to throw other people out of salvation, for, but not throw ourselves out? Well, if Israel lost their salvation based off what they did, I'm sorry. If you think you're better than them, you've got a, pro- you've got a sin pride problem demonstrating that you should lose it. Does that make sense? Right, so he remembers the covenant. All right, so go on. Oh, what else is said there? 
Oh, there's that land thing again. How many times does the land thing show up? It's like it never stops, does it? We saw that in Ezekiel 37, right? We see it in Jeremiah. The land, the land, the land. Why is that so significant to the whole discussion? Well, one, we don't think they ever got it all. Remember, we looked at the, uh, the dimensions of how much land they were supposed to have received last week. Remember, it is just insane how much land. Like, we, remember, we looked at how far it was supposed to go. Even if you say they ever got it, all I, all I need to find, all I have to do is see, show you that there's a promise for land after the Joshua situation, which we discovered in Jeremiah connected to which covenant? The new covenant. Now, if there's promises to land in the new covenant, then this is what we have to do. This is where hermeneutics gets thrown out the window. Land isn't land. Israel isn't Israel. And at that point, why do I, I like, ain't it great that you can just throw out anything you want in the Bible because you don't like it? I mean, like at that point, I'm going to, you worry about land in Israel. I got some verses I need to get rid of really quick, right? Because then I won't feel guilty. Don't you have your own? Right? I'm assuming many women would like submit yourself to the husband. Doesn't mean submit. Doesn't mean husband. Right? Love your wife. Doesn't mean love. Doesn't mean wife. If land doesn't mean land and Israel doesn't mean Israel, why does love mean love and why does wife mean wife? And people say, well, that's ridiculous. No, you're the one establishing the hermeneutic. Not me. Day doesn't mean day. God doesn't mean God. Salvation doesn't mean salvation. Death doesn't mean death. I mean, at this point, nothing means anything. But the land is promised again. That's important. So land is mentioned again. Now, what happens next? The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet, for all of that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. What does everything hinge on? His character. But I will, for their sakes, remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought uh, forth out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the heathen, heathen that I might be their God and I am their Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Simply put, what's going to happen to Israel? They're going to disobey. What's going to happen as a result of them disobeying? The land's going to be made desolate. Everything's going to be made desolate. But what will God do? Remember them. He's not going to forget them. He's not going to forget them. Did that happen in the past? We can read the Bible and see that it it happened in the past, right? Do we believe it uh, happened in 70 A.D.? Yes, obviously everything's made desolate. And a lot of people felt that in 70 AD that meant the what? 
the end of Israel. They're done. And then all of a sudden, what happened? 1940, well, not suddenly. Okay, okay. Not suddenly, okay. okay. Suddenly in the sense like out of nowhere, but not suddenly in the sense of time, right? Suddenly like, whoa, what just happened? All of a sudden, after everyone had made all of their theologies about Israel being finished, in 1948. And even though they've been surrounded by people to destroy them year after year after year, they still exist. Do they have anywhere close to the land? No. Have they experienced the revival? No. Have they experienced the purification from their sin? No. Have the two been made one? No. There's a million things that haven't been done. And so a lot of people are like, well, see, 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 it can't be. It can't. Well, remember, a lot of people said Israel would never exist again. See, 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 they're right there in the land, okay? So maybe sometimes what we have to do is when we don't, this is very important. When the Bible says something will happen, even though how it seems implausible and ridiculous, oh, if we're going to believe the Bible, we just have to say, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know when, but it has to happen because if it doesn't, God's a liar and the Bible's not true. And a lot of people are like, well, God is... I mean, and you can understand the early church going, well, what do we do with these promises? They don't like what to do. Now, what they should have done is, what? I don't understand it. But clearly, it's got to happen. Because how, how did they, think about this. All the, prom, all the prophecies not related to Israel, how were they fulfilled? Tyre and Sidon, were they real cities? Were they real de- literally destroyed? Was uh, Mary a virgin? Right? I mean, I can go on and on and on of prophecy after prophecy. Was the Babylonian captivity figurative? Right? So I'm just saying, when you start establishing a pattern, that's the way you have to go. So he's promising, hey, you're going to... He's not, he's not denying that bad things are going to happen to him. But what is he not going to do? Forget. Forget. And this is before they even get to the land. Now go to Numbers. 23.9. We got to hurry. Numbers 23.9. Spending too much time on kind of just reminding you of the significance of this, but we're going to try to at least finish these. All right. Uh, See, Numbers 23... Where far do we want to go here? All right, here, if you know what's going on, this is Balaam, right? And he's trying, remember, he's supposed to do what? Try to curse Israel, right? And in verse 8, what does he say? How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. And lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. All right. And so, and Balak said, and Balak said unto Balaam, what hast thou done to me? I took thee to curse mine enemies and behold, thou hast blessed them all together. Right. And this is just demonstrating what? God's what? Well, his protection of whom? On Israel. Protection of Israel, right? So there's a lot more we could say here, but just the basic concept. Balaam tries to curse, but he can't curse because God is sovereign and protecting. Yes? All right, then go to Jeremiah. There's, there's more there we could look at, but for time's sake. 
Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm just going to start in verse 1, because, I mean, these passages we can read over and over and over. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. Everybody there? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. And come on, if anyone tries to say that, that's the church. It's just, I mean, come on, you're just now, it's just, you lose all credibility. Does that make sense? I mean, come on. We know, who is Jeremiah prophesying to? We know this, this, this dealing with the nation of Israel. I mean, there's just, at some point, just, if, like, if we can't figure this out, then I just give up. Okay, I'm just going home, all right? Thus speaketh the Lord, Lord God of Israel. Okay, verse 3. For lo, the days cometh, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the, Jeremiah 33. For lo, the days come, come saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and Judah, making it very clear, this is referring to a divided kingdom. This is not the church. Okay, it's not the church. How is verse uh, 3 uh, written in the NIV? And it says, uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from the captivity and restore them to the land. Please note, Israel and Judah, he's going to bring back to the land. Was Israel and Judah ever brought back to the land? No. There you go. I mean, like, I don't know what you can do here. Right, but let's continue. I'm going to bring them back to the land, saith the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning... Why is that significant? It not, only, not only does it clearly demonstrate it's national, it's referring to both the north and the south. And we know historically what happens to the north when they go into the Assyrian captivity. They never come out. So when did this promise get fulfilled? So guess what your options are? We've been through this a hundred times. What are your options? Okay, it's not, Israel isn't Israel, Judah isn't Judah, it's the church. Now just try to figure out how this works. So this is how you have to go so spiritually. Okay, so, so you were in captivity, Bobby, to sin. And then when you're saved, God brings you not back. Not back because he's never been there. So, so, okay, he's going to bring you into not land. He's going to bring you in. Oh, he's going to bring you into the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. You see where he just starts losing all. No, no, this, the whole point was he's going to do what? I'm going to cause them to return to the land. How could Bobby be returning to the land if he was never, like, so that, how do you even, how do you even make this work spiritually? Does that make, it doesn't make any sense, right? So then you either have to say, well, this was fulfilled in the past, but you can't say it was fulfilled in the past because it has both Judah and Israel. You see how this is, it doesn't make any sense. And you don't have, I make it very clear, you don't have to go full-blown, left-behind, and crazy, dispensational uh, in certain aspects. This is just saying, this hasn't happened. 
All right? And so what, what, what happens? Verse 5, For thus saith the Lord, We have heard uh, a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It's even the time of Jacob's trouble, but, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. That's pretty... No more. No more will strangers do what? How does that text read in the NIV? Verse 8. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Let me ask you a question. After the Babylonian captivity, did foreigners ever enslave them again? Till 1948. Now, they're still having trouble. They haven't been enslaved. Well, in some ways, they don't even have control of, of Jerusalem. It's divided into three sections. But, yeah, you get the idea. So, because the, well, the point is, that has never been fulfilled. Has never been fulfilled. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Did, are they serving God now? Has David been raised up for them? No, hasn't. Verse 10, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be in quiet, and none shall make him afraid. That's not, that's not even going on right now. If you've ever been to Israel, there's still concern and fear. There's violence there all the time. Verse 11, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I will make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. There will be punishment. There will be setting aside. There will be chastisement. But he will not be done with them. Now, connect that to Romans, the book of Romans. What is the significance of that in, in light of the book of Romans? We may be chastised. We may experience punishment. But God will not be done with us. You see why, he, you see why Paul is turning his attention to, to Israel in 9, 10, and 11? Because it has everything to do with your salvation. Amen? All right. There, oh, what time is it? Okay, we're going to go as fast as we can. All right. Go to Jeremiah 46. All right, there, I, I, for every one of these chapters in Jeremiah, I just want to read, I want to preach the whole chapter because, you know, it, you, it just it's so much here, but all right. Um, uh, 46, I'm sorry. Jeremiah 46. All right, we can go to, uh, we can go, we'll go to verse 25, all right? 
Jeremiah 46, 25. Everybody there? Jeremiah 46, 25. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No and Pharaoh and Egypt and, and their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all of them that trust in him. I will deliver them into the hands of those that seek their lives and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterwards it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. Verse 27, what does he say? But fear, thou, fear, thou, but fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will... Save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and be in rest, and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Verse 28. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations, whether I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Once again, it's the same promise. Like, here's the question at some point. How many promises do you need to read? Just say, look, it's going to take us. I know you think I'm joking. I don't care how tired you get. I am not going to stop until we go through all of these scriptures that I have written down. Because it may take us six months, but I am sick and tired of there being any disagreement on this subject. There should be no disagreement. Okay, it's everywhere. I mean, one scripture after another scripture after another scripture after another scripture. And don't, and, and, I, and, and look, and I, to the people who may start emailing me, email me all of your arguments. I had to write papers for the amillennial position. I know your argument. It's always like, well, you should read this book. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. I've never read a book on amillennialism. Never, never, never. Not one. Not one. Seven different schools. Never. Oh, and some of them were all millennial. I don't even have a clue. Bring me your best argument. You're right. I've never heard it. Never heard it. Not one time. You, show me something I've never seen before. Okay, I know the arguments. My problem with the arguments is this. At some point, what, let me make it very clear. What does it become an issue about? It's a hermeneutical problem. For me to maintain the on-mill position required me to change my hermeneutic. It was weird. I would have a hermeneutic here. That's a literal woman who's going to have a literal baby who's a literal virgin. Who's going to be born in a literal town called Bethlehem. And a literal Judah. Right? He's going to literally... Heal people. He's going to literally suffer. He's going to literally die. He's going to be literally resurrected. He's literally going to return. Literal, 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 literal. And then all of a sudden, not literal. And at some point I realized, that doesn't work. And again, we all remember, how did everything change for me? What, 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 where, where did everything change for me? Jeremiah. Remember, I was standing right here. We were going to have a simple lesson on covenant theology. Simple lesson. Okay. okay. Simple lesson. And what did I discover? Wait, the new covenant is made with whom? The house of Israel and house of Judah. Now, all of my all-millennial training told me that's spiritual Israel. Right? And I'm like, but wait a minute. It says not like the covenant I made with your fathers. Oh, wait, that, that doesn't, that's a, how does that fit spiritual Israel? So then I started having problems, right? So then I said, oh, I know what we'll do. 
We'll look up every use of the word Israel, and then we'll find spiritual Israel, and then I'll prove that I'm right. Six months later, 3,000 passages later, stupid, 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 stupid. Right? Then I was like, what am I doing? How did I miss that? Then I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not only did I miss it, now, to be fair, I always said, I didn't, I didn't want to even get into eschatology. Remember, I always said, I'm going to avoid us. I said, we got 65 other books before we get into eschatology, right? That was always my approach, right? We got, before we get into eschatology. But then I realized this is not an, an issue about eschatology. It was an issue about hermeneutics. So then I had to go back to those passages and say, now I'll apply the correct hermeneutic. I applied the correct hermeneutic. Well, let me say, some may say it's an incorrect hermeneutic. We could have that discussion. I'm saying a consistent hermeneutic. Is that a better word? Because some people say, no, 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 no. The correct hermeneutic is to spiritualize it. Well, then you can, but then you have to be consistent. You have to do what? Jesus really wasn't born of a virgin. That's just a, a spiritual, like, then, I, then, then that would change. Well, at that point, I'm going to just throw my Bible away. Does that make sense? Right. So please note that this, when we, we read these passages, I know what you're saying, but how many different times do we have to read this until you don't ever want to read again? Because I don't want anyone to go through the same process I went through. All right. Because I, I mean, I, I know when you when you're writing papers from one position in school, right, you think, OK, I got this down. But you're realizing you've got to write it to to fulfill that position. And then, you, yeah, well, then. It's not my own fault, all right? So now, that's uh, Jeremiah 46. Go to Amos. We'll end with this one. This will be the last one. I just want you to realize why we're doing this, okay? All right? Book of Amos, chapter 9. Uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 8. Now, please note, we're, we're a completely different author, right? Completely different author, completely different historical setting. Amos chapter uh, 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. What, what's the significance here once again? Yeah, verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, once again, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be punishment. But what's not going to happen to Israel? Not going to be utterly destroyed. How many different promises do you have to have? You know what? There's more probably more promises about God not being done with Israel than there are promises about the Messiah. 
And, and, and how, how fur, we, we, we can be so, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We can be so certain and so dogmatic. And even verses that are kind of like, okay, I think that's about Jesus. We're like, that's about Jesus. And it's literal. But then all of these other verses we do what with? Maybe, not so sure. Maybe, not so sure. So, here's, here's what I want you to do, all right? Well, we have to stop there. So, what have we looked at so far? I'm going to break the two categories. Old Testament predicts that repentance and restoration of Israel will happen, and that is distinct from the Babylonian captivity. Number two, the perpetuity of the nation of Israel is repeated over and over and over, and even though there will be apostasies and multiple restorations and divine chastening, Israel will not be done away with. And we just barely scratched the surface on verses. Look, we could probably, I'm not joking, we could probably find a book almost this big with just all the promises to Israel. What blows me away is anyone who ever wants to argue doesn't come with their notebook that looks this big and say, I've, I've, I have figured out every promise. Yeah, because you don't want to do that much work. And if you don't want to do that much work, then you don't care about truth, so why are you arguing about it in the first place? <laughs> right? Or you can just buy a Matthew Henry commentary. And he does a wonderful job of doing nothing because just saying Israel is not Israel and it's the church. It's a, he doesn't even explain how. I mean, you read it. He doesn't even explain how. I have, back when we were looking up all the terms Israel, I had Emma looking up the Matthew Henry commentary. Or Emma. Why do I say Emma? Lydia, okay. I had her looking it up, right? Because, and she, the same thing. It was like the church, the church. Was there any explanation? No, it was just, it just dogmatically asserted, not ever theologically proven. All right, so here's what I want us to end with. Everybody ready? As this is going to take forever, but the time is going to be a constant reminder of this. When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. When God saves us, he doesn't change his mind. And that means we can take comfort that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Or as we talked about in Jude, we are kept. We are preserved. Nothing can do away with that. We can't do anything. Nothing. If, if we can't separate ourselves from the love of God, neither could Israel. And if Israel could, then we can If God is done with Israel, why wouldn't he be done with you? Like, what kind of utter narcissistic arrogance for you to say, Israel, we've got your promises. You literally can burn in hell. We're good to go. Like, what? who do you think you are? Because guess what you deserve? You deserve the same judgment they do. Now, is there salvation? Listen, this is very important. Does that mean that every person who's a Jew just immediately went to heaven? No, it's based off faith. 
the, problem, the issue is God is not done with Israel, and there will be a national what? Revival and restoration, and then they will be saved, those at that time. All right? Clearly, there's no, I mean, because Paul in the beginning of Romans 9 is upset that some were what? Not saved. But as a nation, he's not done with that nation. Remember, there's national promises. Everybody got that? And then there's the spiritual promises. The promises to the nation is their land, their restoration, and the spiritual promises is their ultimate revival at whatever time that occurs. I don't know when that will occur, but it will occur. Right? How will it occur? You can have all the debates all day about how it will occur. But I know this, they got to have the land. And what else has to happen? King David has to rule and reign over them from Jerusalem. And no other nation can hurt them. And they're not enslaved to anyone. I mean, these are promises over and over and over and over and over. Those things ha- didn't happen after those promises were made. Those promises were made, and some of those promises are made Babylonian captivity. Clearly it didn't happen after the Babylonian captivity because when Jesus comes along, what's going on? Hey, render under Caesar what is Caesar. We got to deal with these people. Okay, well, and, and in fact, what were they thinking was getting ready to happen? They thought the king had arrived. They were like, it's time! This is weird. And you see, is it because they all misunderstood? They understood. They just didn't understand this other part. They didn't understand the Gentiles, which is going to be Paul's point in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The Gentiles are brought in for what purpose? To, now, it, now it just, just logic. If we're brought in to make them jealous, we're not brought in to make us jealous. Hey, I'm going to bring in the Gentiles to make the Gentiles jealous. No, to make Israel jealous. To show them that this is all a part of it. Until the time of the Gentiles be. Then what? Has he turned back to Israel? It's the only thing that makes any sense. Only thing that makes any sense. All right. We'll stop there. We didn't get far, but we've got all those passages. Make sure someone's keeping a list of all the passages we've looked at. So then if anyone ever comes up, we can just say, here you go. You go bring me all of your interpretations of all of these. And guess what it will look like? It'll be a Matthew Henry interpretation where I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to tell you that's not Israel. That's not Israel. That's not Israel. I hate when people just says, that's not Israel. Based off what? Well, I just don't want it to be. Okay, well then, I don't believe you're saved. Okay, I'm like, let's just, let's just, everyone just believes whatever they want. All right, does that make sense? All right. Isn't it good news? Good news for me, because I can look at Israel and like, man, y'all were a train wreck. And then I look at me, I'm like, I'm a train wreck. But God, God's not done with them. God's not done with me. Whew. Because if God is done with Israel, then there's no hope for any of us. Especially if you look at 2,000 years of church history. Yeah. 2,000 years, everyone said, man, the church is really messed up. Yeah, we're a lot like Israel. Israel was, a, I mean, when we always look at Israel, don't we always go, what, what was their problem? And then you're like, man, what is our problem? 
Because, I mean, every day you just read another article about what, what's, what happened in what church, what, what's going on now. And then you, are you just look in your own life, like, what am I doing this week? Like, how did I get here? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. This at times is going to be very academic and tedious, but I hope we do not forget the practical ramifications of this. If we cannot trust you when it comes to the promises you made to Israel, then we cannot trust the promises you made to us. Your, your promises are eternal. Your promises are secure. And that means nothing can separate us from your love because you have promised that to us. Let us understand this. Let us understand every promise. And then when we get back into Romans 9, let us then take these truths to help us navigate the difficulty of Romans chapter 9. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.